New from KTEL Records, 22 explosive hits from Leonard Cohen and the Sunshine Band. Well, my friends are gone and my head is gray. I ache in the places where I used to play and I'm crazy for love. Yes, if you think Leonard Cohen is too gloomy, you haven't heard this KTEL powerhouse collection. I stepped into an avalanche It covered up my soul The happy side of Leonard Cohen in this blockbuster KTEL release. Order now before he sues us. If you want a lover I'll do anything you ask me to Also from KTEL, The Nose, three dynamite panelists. Manfred Mann, Olivia Newton-Papoulos, and David Soule. And now he's known as Casey Kasem for depressives, Colin McEnroe. That's right. These three panelists were playing together in a garage band in Montreal. Now they have a number one talk show. The name of that band, When We Get Back. All right, so we are going to be talking, first of all, mad props to uh, Jonathan McPants, who put that intro together on the on the, on the scantest instructions from me. So that was very impressive. Uh, all right, we're, we're going to be talking about Leonard Cohen today. We're also going to be talking about um, how to describe this. I mean, you, you sort of think that the whole speculation about the personality of Donald Trump um, load is pretty tapped out. But you would be wrong. You would be wrong. Well, we uh, happened <laughs> upon some audio tapes this week that, at least to some of us, struck us as kind of the Orson Welles take on this guy, the Orson Welles take that we've been waiting for. Anyway, that is to come. Uh, but first of all, let me tell you who's here. Uh, well, the part of David Soul is, in fact, played by Bill Curry today. He is uh, himself uh, and many other people besides. Uh, and he claims he's making his debut on the nose. We don't think that's entirely true, but it might be true. Uh, Irene Papoulos uh, teaches at, uh, teaches writing at Trinity College, and Brian Francis Slattery is arts editor for the New Haven Independent, a producer at WNHH Radio, uh, a musician, a novelist, uh, lots of other stuff as well. So uh, we're going to begin with Leonard Cohen's new release, You Want It Darker. He's uh, 82 years old. Um, let's begin before we say a word. Let's play a little bit of the title track, You Want It Darker. dealer, I'm out of the game. If you are the healer, means I'm broken and lame. If thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. You want it darker. We kill the flame. Magnified, sanctified, be thy holy name. Vilified, crucified in the human frame A million candles burning for the help that never came You want it darker All right. That, by the way, he's saying Hineni Hineni, which is a, the Hebrew word meaning basically here I am. And with a little bit of uh, subtext of at your service, it's kind of well, it's what Abraham says when uh, God calls to him. At first, it's what Moses says uh, when the burning bush begins to communicate with him. And it's how you answer the phone. I'm going to start doing that, actually. Hineni Hineni. <laughs> um, 
It's like better. Didn't Alexander Graham Bell say ahoy? Isn't ahoy, ahoy. Ahoy, ahoy. Yeah. Ahoy, ahoy. yeah. <laughs> it's so, different, but go uh, ahead. Things yeah. you learn from watching The Simpsons. That's right, because yeah. that's what Mr. Burns said. <laughs> how Mr. Burns answers the phone. Mr. Burns answers the phone. Ahoy, yeah. ahoy, yeah. Ahoy, ahoy. So um, anyway, we're already getting <laughs> sidetracked here. We haven't even said a word about uh, Leonard Cohen. So, um, Brian, I'm going to start with you. You're the musician among us. Um, I mean, it's first of all, I, I, this is a beautifully, beautifully produced album to yes. my uh, ears. Yeah. I wouldn't say that it's musically a huge departure for Leonard. It's the Leonard we, we know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that, you know, for, for me, for musicians, one of the, it's not exactly a criticism as much of an observation that like Leonard Cohen's music can often be like sort of cheesy and maybe a little boring. Um, but it's like the, as in the background music. Wow. That it's, yeah. you know, that it's sort of like a, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's more like a backdrop for the lyrics, you know, and, and it's, it seems to be a pretty, like, obvious intention of his to be like, this is, you know, I'm a lyricist, which, you know, he says a lot, you know, especially when someone talks about his music, he says, you know, I'm just a poet. Um, and the, you know, the lyrics are wonderful and obviously worth listening to. Um, and, and on this album in particular, uh, I think that, like, his voice is really in front of the music. You know, to the point where I was listening to my, I was listening to it in my car on the way up here, and I could barely hear the music sometimes, <laughs> you know, over the road noise, you know. And then, meanwhile, his voice is, you know, uh, crystal clear. Um, but on this album, what's you know, the uh, it's nice to not hear a lot of sort of, uh, you know, out of the box synthesizer noises, and instead some like really, really thoughtful and like really tasteful in a good way. Uh, arrangements of these things you know like he's he's got a couple of players behind him who obviously really know what they're doing and are really good at not overplaying you know so that the texture has some really nice sort of like subtle shifts to it that you know keep they keep me going for sure you know even if even apart from the lyrics so um irene uh, leonard cohen kind of arrives to us here at the age of 82 and uh, in lots of different guises and lots of different forms i mean there is this guy who is almost strictly a poet in some ways but there's also a guy who writes songs and then there's also a guy that we've sort of watched in various ways uh he, right now he's arriving on the heels of a very lengthy david remnick profile uh in the new yorker uh <laughs> terry gross just re-aired a really fascinating conversation uh, with him on fresh air um so there's this guy too i mean me Maybe more than a lot of musicians, including, I mean, people like Bob Dylan, who, you know, kind of consciously remains kind of inscrutable. Uh, and then, you know, lots of other musicians like Paul Simon, who, I mean, we don't even, we know a lot about this guy, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> we know a lot about him. Yeah. Well, but do we know him? D- but do we know him? I don't, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, it just... Uh, in response to what Brian said, I feel like the word cheesy is so it's so it just seems so offensive to you know, and I yeah. I can see why somebody would see it as him as cheesy, but at the Have same time, have you heard time, the synthesizer noises from some of the albums in the eighties, especially? Uh, yeah, I'll handle, I'll handle this <laughs> and I don't. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think it's cheesy at all, you know. But yeah. that it's because of. Uh, I feel like it's probably if I just heard it out of the blue now and I never heard of Leonard Cohen, mm-hmm. I might be able to understand what you said. But in this listening, listening to this one, I just felt like those background voices are so great and yeah, so beautiful. Absolutely. And I always had a fantasy like if only I could be a backup singer for Leonard Cohen. That would be like my dream. Mm-hmm. But um, but I feel like I you know he he when I was in high school, I got that album Songs from a Room, and I just it it just 
you know, and it was interesting because I don't have the actual record anymore. I haven't had it for probably decades. And I remembered it as a picture. So I started to think about it. And I remembered the picture as the white room. And I, I remembered it as a woman lying in a sh- naked with a sheet around her. And then I looked up the album and I realized, no, she's not, she's not lying in a bed. She's sitting at a desk with a, with a towel around that her. That was you. And it was right. So <laughs> that, was the kind of, that, yeah, that was the kind of fantasy that, that I remembered mm. him evoking in me. Like just this sort of like you're in Greece. You're having this like amazing love affair. You know, there's all these, this music and depth and real spirituality slash sexuality. And so that, that person, the seeds of that that were, were planted in me in terms about Leonard Cohen make me just horrified at the thought of him being th- cheesy. But, you know, I just yeah. feel like well, that's so much a part. So for me, that's so much a part of him more than who he actually may be as a person. Hmm. Well, I know Bill is itching to get in here, although I, I will say I, I kind of know what Brian is saying about that, too. And I was actually very interested in the Remnick profile where in the middle of the profile, Bob Dylan, who never talks very much about anything or anybody – he won't even answer phone calls from people giving him Nobel Prizes. Goes into this lengthy, you know, disquisition about not just about the lyrics and and status of Leonard Cohen, but about his music and says his music's kind of underrated and it's better than people realize. And he explains yeah. it in ways that I don't entirely understand. It did remind me of because I don't particularly like Leonard Cohen's music. It did remind me of uh, what Mark Twain said about Wagner, which is uh, his music isn't as bad as it sounds. Um, but um, <laughs> But that's just me. All right, Bill, take over. Bill, Bill uh, has been like on a twenty-five-year like, project to convert me to Leonard Cohen. Uh, yeah, and and I just gave up. You'll be relieved to know that last that la- those last few moments got you off the hook. Uh, you know, let me, let me say first of all, I, I actually once had a chance to meet Leonard Cohen, and I passed up on it. This was many many years ago, and I knew him only through Judy Collins, and I knew that he'd done the uh, some of the track to a, a movie I was in love with called McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which many of you remember, and. Uh, but I didn't really, you know, it, it was sort of a folky thing. As I hadn't been listening, and then much later in life, fifteen years ago, I, I haven't been on you for twenty-five years. I haven't been on Leonard for twenty-five years. I was listening to a wonderful K.D. Lang album called "The Hymns to the Forty Ninth Parallel," in which she does "Bird on a Wire." It's all Canadian composers, and she does "Bird on a Wire" and "Hallelujah," and it just blew me away. And I got the essential Leonard Cohen, and then all of it, and I became president and recording secretary of the Farmington chapter of Deadheads for Leonard Cohen. And, and I know it gets a little boring sometimes. But I, I think this is our greatest living lyricist. I don't have any doubt about that. And, I'd, and I would just say to Brian, I, I, you know, Brian's a musician and I've just spent my life parsing language. So naturally I would come to that part of it first and second. But part of the reason for the cheesy reputation that came up is that Leonard used the word cheesy a lot. And sometimes – in a sort of self-deprecating way. And hmm. I'm reminded of Keith Richard taking guitar licks and putting them on cheap recorders and then onto the uh, – uh, as he did on Street Fighting Man and, and, uh, and Jumping Jack Flash because he wanted it that way. Hmm. Uh, Leonard going into a, into a tourist shop in Times Square and getting a cheap little recorder on a kind of synthesizer sound because he wanted it that way. And when I listen to Tower of Song and uh, I'm Your Man and some of the stuff from – I don't mean the Phil Spector stuff, but some of that stuff that was clearly Leonard's. It sounds great to me. And now, again, I have a kind yeah. of art's greatest hits knowledge of music, so I'm not someone to speak well, to Well, I mean, I'm Your Man is a perfect album for that because I have that thing where it has both my favorite of his songs and my least favorite of his songs on it, depending on whether I think the synth noises work, quote, yeah. unquote, See, and that's just not, that, that's just not how I'd approach it. I just want to say, say one other thing, and that is that to what Colin was saying, this guy's 82 years old. I know this isn't a show about gerontology. 
But uh, uh, we've had a <laughs> – Sometimes it feels that way. Yeah, that's right. Only when I'm here. But it, but it, um, but there is this thing that, that's going on here in which, you know, you've seen Paul Simon come out with a very good album. Van Morrison has a great album, which, again, yeah, sort of what Brian said, people are saying, it just sounds like all the other Van Morrison, to which I say, great. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And I, uh, 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 Dylan, of course, is still producing. Stephen Sondheim, who hasn't had a hit in 25 years, is may have a, uh, another show coming out. I don't know of a single composer of any era or genre who has composed at this high a quality and at this pace so late in life. Is there anybody else who ever made music this good this often at the age of 82? And he's had three great albums since he was 78. It's really kind of extraordinary. The last thing I'll just say is that I'd love one thing about, about Dylan and Simon and, 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 uh, uh, and, and Leonard. All have been all their lives interested in different mixes of the political the personal and especially the romantic and the spiritual. And Leonard's, when they lended the album with the future and um, uh, first we take Manhattan and democracy and everybody knows there's some of the most powerful politi- – we don't think of them that way. Some of the most powerful political songs. And on that same album was the most beautiful spiritual song I think he ever wrote called The Anthem, um, Forget Your Perfect Offering, um, Let the Bells – that still can ring. Uh, there's a crack, a crack in everything. That's right, how the I'm going to break in just because we are on a very just, tough, we're on oh, a tough sorry. fundraising clock here, and I want to get a little bit more of the music on the air. This is uh, probably the song that uh, we all have different songs that we like the best. It's a song called On the Level. We're going to pick it up with the second verse. Now I'm living in this temple where they tell you what to do. I'm old and I've had to settle on a different point of view. I was fighting with temptation, but I didn't want to win. A man like me don't like to see temptation cave it in. Your crazy fragrance all around, your secrets in my view. My loss, my loss was saying found, my doom was saying do. Let's keep it on the level When I walked away from you I turned my back on the devil He turned his back on the angel, too. So, uh, Irene, he's obviously writing about you, um, lying under that white sheet waiting for him. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things that I have a question about, I, like, uh, I, do, I love Leonard Cohen, the concept. Like, I really love Leonard Cohen, the concept. <laughs> this I lo- song? How about this song? Didn't I, this like song the song, I like the song a lot. Yeah. I like the song a lot. Uh, and my whole thing is, like, I, uh, like three, after three songs, I'm done. It doesn't matter what three songs are. I'm done. But I, like, I love Leonard Cohen, the concept. Uh, I, I like reading about him. I like the person I read about when I'm reading about him. I like listening to him talk on Fresh Air. I haven't seen the documentary, uh, I'm Your Man, but I bet you I'll like that, too. Um, but one of the questions that I have for people who really do like him is so much of this, as Bill has suggested, is really about spirituality and spiritual quest. And, and you know, I mean, you read the Remnick profile and this guy spent just huge chunks of his life uh, engaged in, in religious questions. And I sort of wonder about like the non-faith community. <laughs> like, like I get all this. You know? <laughs> but I sort of like – I don't know. Do people – I feel like he's making faith fashionable, which I'm all in favor of. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean I think – and it's also the non-faith community also has something, some relationship to some kind of ineffable feeling that he provides for us. You know, that's like 
uh, it, it's sort of this this mysterious thing. It's not connected to a religion. He's you know, and he's he's careful to say he's not a. He said you know. You feel like he's leaving a light on for you. He's leaving the light on for us. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's I think a huge part of his appeal. Just this sense of some kind of connection to something that's you know potentially it, it's human, but it's not what we usually talk about in our daily life. But it's it's transcendent, and and he's going to take us there. That's why I sort of feel like. Don't tell me about your life. I just want you to take me there, you know, somehow. Um, All right. I'm going to play a little bit of uh, Brian's favorite song. Current, at least it was last time we checked in with Brian. <laughs> uh, this is called uh, Treaty. Treaty is really good. I've seen you change the water into wine. I've seen you change it back to water, too. I sit at your table every night. I try, but I just don't get high with you. I wish there was a treaty we could sign. I do not care who takes this bloody hill. I'm angry and I'm tired all the time. I wish there was a treaty. I wish there was a treaty. Between your love and mine. All right, Slattery, take over here. Why? Why is this your favorite song on this CD? Um, part of it is a lot. A lot of it actually is is because of what Bob Dylan talks about in the New Yorker article. That the music underneath this is really, really cool. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's it's got like, uh, it's got an awful lot of sort of um, you know, there's there's a bit of sort of like hymn gospel kind of stuff going on. Just enough jazz to make it interesting. And I also just, I think this is my favorite set of lyrics on this album. And I think this album has a lot of really strong lyrics. But this one is the one that really gets to me. I like the, I like the whole I do not care who takes this bloody hill. Mm-hmm. And how every, it seems to me that in this particular song, virtually every line can be read in two ways. Yes. Possibly more than that. And so it, it rewards you for listening closely. Right. The, Bill, you know. I think you would agree about that, too. That could be – this is one of those Leonard Cohen songs. It could be about a relationship. It could be about his place in the cosmos. And, yeah. uh, or all it, of the above. It, it, it right? has to be about uh, – first of all, in terms of the of relationship with the woman and a relationship with God, it's got to be both. It's, it just sort of drips out of every line. And um, let me just say, you know, my feelings were a little hurt when you interrupted me while I was reciting the refrain to anthem. But then when, I I, but, <laughs> but then when you said – but then when you said you couldn't listen to more than two Leonard Cohen songs in a row, <laughs> I felt better. And in, 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 and I just want to go back to that point in, in that it came out at a time when he's always he's always on three different levels in the same album which he did democracy, you know, and he's talking about the sorrow in the street and the holy places where the races meet and the homicidal bitching that goes down in every kitchen. He's writing anthem, and it kind of is something something for our moment. He has this tempered but insistent hope, and it really is expressed in the spiritual songs alongside of a much darker social view and often a darker view of himself, uh, a very honest and, and, uh, and again in this age of propaganda, here's this person really trying to plumb the depths of his own soul to the best of his ability and lay it out there. And, and, and at the end of his life, in these last few albums, there's almost nothing political. Now it is almost – and there's almost nothing sensuous in all the sensuality and other stuff. Now it's really just focused on, on that sort of last stage self-recognition and larger question. 
All right. Uh, for more of Bill Curry talking about uh, Leonard Cohen, we'll have like a 90-minute SoundCloud thing we'll put up. Uh, but right now we have to take a break. Uh, and there's going to be some people asking you to support Public Radio. It's the last day of the drive. And I think they have gifties and nice things to give you, too. So if you really like the kind of radio that we do here uh, and like shows like The Nose, uh, do the right thing. All right. So I don't forget, uh, on Thursday of this coming week, November 3rd, at 3 p.m. at TheaterWorks, Richard Dreyfus and I are going to sit on the stage of the play Relativity, in which he's playing Einstein, and we are going to talk. Uh, and you can join us uh, in the audience. Tickets are $20. They support WNPR and TheaterWorks. You call the TheaterWorks box office to get those tickets. I think he – I understand. My sense is he really wants to talk about the election too. So we are going to – therefore, uh, we'll, we're going to do the show. We're going to turn it around really fast. Uh, it will be the nose next Friday. Just the nose will just be me and Richard Dreyfus. Um, so that will be on the 4th. But if you want to see the thing live anyway, there are tickets available, 3 p.m. Uh, all right. So we're moving on. This next segment uh, is either the to the uh, eternal blame or eternal credit of Irene Papoulos. Uh, because, you know, one thing we've been struggling with is like we just kind of don't want to talk about politics and the election on the nose. Although it, it so overwhelms the culture these days like no election ever has, that it's very hard to keep it out one way or another. But, you know, we're always kind of trying to build that wall, as they say. Uh, and uh, but so she was emailing us about this uh, this podcast, The Run Up, which is like maybe the only political podcast I haven't been listening to. And, and the way that these tapes uh, that have been uh, – that have surfaced, uh, you've seen them uh, in The New York Times, uh, written about in The New York Times. The Run Up is a New York Times podcast. Um, they're, they're Donald Trump talking a few years ago about himself to a biographer, uh, Michael D'Antonio. Uh, and, and they're talking, you hear him. Well, actually, rather than me describe it, uh, this is, uh, we're going to play one. This is about uh, the, first <laughs> the first time he saw his name in print. I'll never forget. The first time I ever saw my name in print was uh, in a little paper up in that area of huh. New York because I had had three singles on a home run. Huh. So the the headline was uh, Trump wins game for Nima, and I said I love it. Ah. You I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. It was the first time I was ever in a newspaper. You know, I was a young kid, right? I was probably a sophomore in high school. Seeing my name in print felt good. Yeah, very interesting. It's so, very interesting. I think everybody has that experience if they let themselves be honest about it. Like if well, yeah. well most people aren't in print though. Don't forget how many people are in print. Yeah, I think people would like it, but who's in print? Right. Hmm. Nobody's in print. I mean, you get that little thing, even if you know, it, yeah, but listing if, the honor roll or something. But, but in print. your world, but basically, you're not in print because right. people aren't going to write. Even in look, this was just a special thing where I had a lot of hits and a lot of stuff, right? right. But even then, you know, you're not going to be in print unless you did that. So, hmm. so very few people are in print. Very few people are in print, Irene. I think that's one message we can get very clearly here. So the two people that you hear talking, you, you hear Donald Trump here, but then, then the uh, analysis of these tapes are done by this guy D'Antonio who's working on this biography of Trump uh, and Michael Barbaro the, who's from the New York Times and is the host of this podcast. I had to keep reminding myself all the way through that neither one of them is a therapist because they both talk like therapists. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, Brian isn't having it either. <laughs> uh, Brian's not feeling that. But we'll come to that in a second. Uh, but um, – 
But there's I, there's so much there, just including this kind of – you can hear D'Antonio break in and go, well, you know, people get in print for the honor roll. This is like he's a high school kid who hit, you know, got four hits in a baseball game and he's insisting that it's this completely sui generis experience that nobody could possibly identify with because nobody knows what it's like to be in print. Yeah. Even if you're in the honor roll, that's pretty exciting if you're in high school. But <laughs> yeah. no, it doesn't count. Um, yeah, well, speaking of, yeah, so they're not psychologists, but they just are great psychologists in terms of how they analyze him. And I, I just love the way D'Antonio is saying, like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, like sort of to encourage him on the tape to go along. And then, um, you know, but then he gives us, it's just such a great little window into his whole experience of the of the tape, being on the tape, and then talking about what he was really thinking or, or what he was really putting together about that. I just think it's a it's a fantastic um, uh, way of, of I mean, Trump is, has, you know, in spite of all the political side, we're not which we're not really talking about, he has just provided a very, very interesting um, um, figure. He is a very interesting figure for, for psych- psychoanalysis and just thinking about his personality type, his kind of person, his kind of man, what makes him tick, you know, and that I think that helps us think about ourselves too by you know to think about him like why is he i mean yes he's he's unique but he also there are threads of him everywhere so these tapes they include trump talking about his childhood about his father about his brother who died young from a drinking problem they uh, then go on to include very strange little anecdotes about arsenio hall and about a lounge singer to whom trump tried to discover we may be able to share that one with you a little bit more as we go along they also include other people uh, talking about trump including uh, ivana telling this kind of amazing ski slope story which you may have seen in the new york times but yes all of it uh, brian is sort of played out, at least on this podcast, in this very unteam kind of sound. The tapes sound very unteam, and then this uh, slightly hushed conversation between these two men um, has a little bit of the cloistered feeling of the therapy chamber. And you just weren't feeling it, babe. Yeah, yeah, not not really. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that part of it is that, um, you know, I I sort of felt, this this gets into like what podcasts can do, right, That, that other things can't do. And one of them is that because we haven't really decided what podcasts are yet, you are allowed to take recordings and put them in a put them on a couch in a therapy session in a way that like if you know if you're going to write a newspaper article you wouldn't be able to do it. And there there are very few other uh, media. I can't think of anything right now exactly. Even radio it would be sort of weird to do a segment, you know, on radio like mm-hmm. that. Um but I think that, you know, for me, it was this was like the first time I honestly kind of felt bad for the guy because I thought, like, you're saying an awful lot of things about his personality and not really giving him a chance to respond. Like, this is one of the few times where I actually want to hear what Trump would say about the way that these – the way that the uh, two guys on the you podcast think the interview was rigged? <laughs> is, that what is that what you're telling us, Brian? Wow. Let me just wrap my mind around that. <laughs> but Brian, I do feel like the very nature of the tapes that we're listening to is sort of Trump's response, right? I mean yeah. he's constantly being challenged in the gentlest possible way by D'Antonio and then kind of usually – uh, and you, you, that whole thing, he has like tends to have a word that he repeats over and over again, whether right. it's a phrase like in print or right. acclimated. Uh, and um, I mean, he's sort of telling you what he what his take. I mean, his take on himself is the only thing he really has, as opposed to some kind of pure uh, de- declaration of self. 
Yeah, though, if we're, if we're going to if we're going to do the therapy thing, though, doesn't the person on the couch get a chance to respond when the therapist says something about them? No, that's debating. Uh, <laughs> OK, no, actually, I think is the answer. But, um, you know, it's, I mean, it sounds to me <laughs> to differ with Brian again. It sounds to me as if I mean, really what you're saying is that at each time D'Antonio should step in and say, now, would you like to take a moment to explain to us why that doesn't mean what it seems to? <laughs> because, you know, it's basically his own words. I, I was touched. You know, I, I told, was telling you about the. I had this wonderful uh, friend of mine who's a Buddhist chef, uh, Victor, and we were talking about Trump. And he um, has sees he from the beginning has seen Trump suffering, mm-hmm. and he sees this horrible, needy, angry, undeveloped, frozen personality. And he had said this to me in response. I had said, you know, one of the great things about Trump is that he's provided us this tableau of almost everything that's wrong. Uh, he's he's the anti-Gandhi who modeled the character development that <laughs> India needed and he's the one who models everything that's wrong with us and now we'll at least have this uh, illustrated lesson. And he said yes and think of how he suffered to become that which was such an insight for me. I, I'm still trying to get around it. But I, it, it came home to me. I, I agree with – I mean this makes for very compelling listening, this podcast and, um, and I didn't know about it either. So thank you. But that moment especially when he's talking about the newspapers that you just ran, when he's talking about seeing his face in the newspaper, all I could think of was Narcissus looking into the pond for the first time. Like that could be the moment in which you became this just completely solipsistic and pathetic and hollowed out figure. Um, So, you know, I also thought it was really interesting in terms of watching him in this election. One of the things that D'Antonio – this is my phrase, but what he he was saying was that he's not only – not only is he not capable of introspection, he's not capable of retrospection. You know, he barely has a memory for his own misdeeds because he can't bear the thought of them. And he literally says that two or three times in the interview. And it just sort of we, – we've spent every week for the last few months wondering how could he do that again? You know, you did that again and it's, oh, right, he can't bear to even stop to learn from a lesson, uh, which is just the thousandth reason he shouldn't be president. He does say at one point, I don't – no, I like the future. I like the future, which of course r- reminds me of uh, Don Draper. Only forward. Only go forward <laughs> right. um, from Mad Men. Right. But um, he – and he says, oh, of course I learned from the past. But you know, I like to think about the future. So he, he does throw that out for a second. Of course I learned from the past. But it's not true. We, we know it's not true. I think at least you know, uh, we don't have to be that good of a therapist to know that that's not true, that he, do, he, he is incapable of learning regret or expressing regret or really learning from the past, which is a fascinating quality that a lot of people have. I mean I don't know how, you know, how confessional I would be to some guy that I didn't know that well writing a biography of me. But, and, but I think what struck me, Irene, was how, many, how much of the past he's essentially divorced from and has digested into kind of a secondary experience. I mean it's even there in that little baseball clip. Most of us men, despite what these two guys on the podcast would say, most of us men do remember the home run that we hit if we ever hit one, you know, and it's a significant game. We, I mean, we remember that very keenly. We don't necessarily remember the little article that somebody did in some jerkwater newspaper uh, about it afterwards, but we remember that moment very much. But so much of what Trump says in these tapes is rather than any kind of direct sense of, I mean, he talks about the death of his brother Fred, you know, but he, in a way he just kind of turns it into a lesson. He goes, so when people ask me about that, I say, well, watch out for the drinking, you know, as opposed to, and I was incredibly sad. My, you know, the person I was maybe in some ways closest to in the world was gone. Nothing like, there's never anything like that. There's always a story about sort of how something plays out as a public lesson or 
what they, what his takeaway was from that. Yeah, and I think that's why um, Bill's friend Victor felt like he was like there's something sad about that because there is mm-hmm. not to be able to say I felt really upset or I felt really proud of myself when I hit that thing. It's only how do other people see it or you know what does it look like? And so um, D'Antonio uh, develops this whole idea that that Trump is living a fantasy, like a five-year-old at one point, he says, a five-year-old's fantasy of a life, uh, you know, like what a billionaire should be like, thrown in with some Hugh Hefner references or something, I think he says, you know. And so mm-hmm. it's like, it's like his, he, he's compl- the, 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 the idea that he develops in the podcast is, or the, in, the, you know, in talking about the tapes is that, yeah, there's no, there's no human vulnerability whatsoever. And even though, and he's done so much damage, to, you know, in so many ways, but the internal experience of that is, in some way, to be pitied. You, yeah, I, I, what, two points. One, one of which is that we've been had all these revelations uh, in, in the campaign of uh, uh, Trump's taxes and the Hollywood access tapes, and now this profile and Hillary's speeches, and then the uh, WikiLeaks uh, uh, of her staff memos. And um, and each time this each one hits like a little, at least a little bit of a bomb, and each time I'm thinking, well, yeah, but I knew that, you know, and uh, you know, there's nothing. I didn't learn anything from his tax returns. He's a, he, he's a conniving, selfish guy who's never given a charity, doesn't pay his taxes, and stiffs his contractors. Hillary is a master of pay-to-play politics. And as I listened to this, I thought uh, I could tell that story the time I spent an hour with Trump in his apartment, and that was 20 years ago. But I came away think I, I left thinking this guy's insane. And that, that, you know, but my my first, I spent one hour with him, and we laughed all the way back home. My finance chair, Bobby Simons, and I about what a nutball the guy was. Well, you, I mean, you can definitely identify with the uncomfortable laughter on the tapes, yes. you know, where you just think, yes. like, how do I even respond to what yeah. this man is saying? And, you know, and, and and so it's with all all these late campaign revelations have only told us things we, we – if we, if we looked into our own hearts, we knew the moment he was coming down that escalator in the Trump Tower, we knew all this about him. The moment he was a birther. You know, this, is a, this is a fraud, a fascist and a yeah. deeply emotionally unstable man and he's almost the president. See, I, I, I feel like that there is stuff in here that I didn't know or didn't understand and I'm still processing and I feel like I am hearing something that I, I don't typically hear. I'm going, to work, I'm going to play this other thing. This is a story that he tells on the second of these two interlinked podcasts. Um, I think it's a story that must take place in the, maybe the early 90s. Uh, it's about some kind of big awards dinner where Trump was getting an award. He probably uh, – he was being offered all kinds of possible entertainers to perform at this. But he found this lounge singer who he thought was really good, who he thought he could break. He could really do something great for this guy. So over the objections of Steve Ross <laughs> – over the objections of Steve Ross who was this, uh, uh, this entertainment titan who was planning this whole thing and would supply him with anybody he wanted, Trump insisted on this lounge singer. I told the guy, I said, you have got tonight a chance to be a star. Hmm. He said, do a great job. So he's driving up, and he was some place down in New Jersey, and he's driving to the event for rehearsal, and he's in an automobile accident. Hmm. And he's injured and gets taken to the hospital, but he's badly injured, you know, meaning he's in the hospital for two, three days. Not death, but... He was hurt bad enough that he. So he go, ladies and gentlemen, our performer didn't make it tonight. And I, I just heard that. I'm sitting there saying, "Where do you hear this guy?" And they say, "Kim." Okay, so that was that. So they didn't have the performance. And I said, "That's why he's a lounge act." Now, I'm not blaming injury. I'm just saying that's hey, why he's a lounge. There's a fate 
part of this. Not even faint. He was meant to be a lounge jack. For whatever reason. I mean, he was in the hospital. Okay, I, know, I didn't say, oh, you should have shown up and you were in the right. hospital. Um, the guy didn't show up. I said, Steve, he's a lounge jack. He always will be a lounge jack. That's the way it is. So obviously, um, as Woody Allen would say, interesting distinction. It's not faith, <laughs> but he was meant to be a lounge yeah, act. Yeah, yeah. But there's something that he's trying to tell us there, Brian, about his vision of the world, about how the world works, that, that I've sort of never heard it expressed quite that way before. Yeah, and it apparently it doesn't include the name of the poor guy either, which is, you know, we'll never also, know. He right? was the one that thought he was going to, you know, do great. So, right. you know, but the yeah. minute he didn't, it's like, oh, no, oh, you know, he dismisses him. Right. So you're saying this is essentially a story about this man's failure to fit into Donald Trump's narrative, yeah. which thus consigns yeah. him to this kind of Dantean fate to always be a lounge singer. Which is, yeah, exactly. And that's like his brother, supposedly. He really loved his brother, Fred Jr., and then. Um, the brother became an alcoholic. And instead of being able to say, oh, my gosh, it was horrible because I love my brother and, and he died, he has to say, well, he was weak because he was an alcoholic. You know, so he can't admit to the, you know, so to, to anyone else's vulnerability, including his own. Again, this stuff is interesting. I agree that it's interesting, but, but there's sort of clues I felt I didn't need. You know, if he, if he were more of a mystery, these would be fascinating clues, except it's kind of all out there. And, you know, if, right. you, if you want I, I hate to interrupt you, but we're, I've got to go to a break or I'm going to get in trouble. Producers are yelling at me right now. So we're going to take a very quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to do endorsements. And that's going to be about it. You slipped big time. I heard you. You said your favorite color was green. All right. Special thanks to uh, Jonathan McPants, uh, who has produced the show. Uh, Wolfie's off today. Uh, and thanks to everybody else uh, who uh, worked on the show. Katie Tolarski has been keeping us on track today. We're going to be back on Monday with a scramble. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, to people in the social sciences and personality research about how people's personalities either predict or at least play into the hard choices they make in an election like this. Now it's time to endorse things. It's time to recommend things. Irene Papoulos, I'm going to begin with you. Speaking of uh, having conversations about personalities, I want to um, endorse the, the bar at the Shish Kebab House of Afghanistan. It's such a great place. <laughs> right. And they have great appetizers and it's really fun and it's a great place to go. And you sit there and have – it's you Cafe Society. It's you have Cafe uh, Society in there. It yeah. really feels I, like I, it. I did not yeah. know that. I'm going to yeah. go there right yeah. away. That's on LaSalle Road in West Hartford. Yeah. I, I, Irene's whole life is like Paris in the 20s. Right. You know, I mean it's really impressive. So I'm going to just be political in my, in, uh, in my endorsements. And uh, did you know we have 36 state senators and only eight of them are women? And uh, it just makes me think of my friend Arlene Avery who's up running in a really uphill race up in the summers and uh, east uh, part. And, uh, and I just want to shout out to my friend Mike D'Amico who's my state rep who's like the Tina Turner of politics, knocks on every door. He's probably fine. And an observation that uh, lastly that uh, the Republicans may not win this one but uh, it's going to be closer and then a big, big fight coming up next All right. time. Big wheel to keep on turning. I'm trying to figure out how Mike D'Amico is Tina Turner. But yeah. I'll take your word for it. It's a, <laughs> it really is for another show. Even right. I'll admit that. All right. Uh, what have you got? Uh, you guys are going really fast here. So you actually, you actually you have a cushion here if you oh, need to boy. go along. Yeah. If well, you need to go along. Well, since, since Halloween's around the corner, the, the thing I want to – so some friends and I have been passing around things that we think are pretty messed up to each other. And one of the things that I've been passing around is this graphic novel called Spiral, which is a, a, it's a Japanese – 
Uh, I think it was originally, I think it was originally, you know, published in little units, but is now available in this gigantic book. And it is like really, really unsettling. It's one of those things where, uh, you know, horror fans like to do that sort of, well, it's not that unsettling. Is it that, is it, is it, is it as bad as this? Is it as bad as this? But this, this, this book really does it. It's, it's one of those things where things get sort of like creepier and creepier and creepier and creepier in a way that's like really quite unique. And uh, if if people like that sort of thing, I would totally recommend it. Um, I'm going to endorse, based on uh, only two episodes so far, the rebooted uh, Prairie Home Companion under Chris Thiele. Um, there were things that Garrison Keillor did that nobody could possibly do. Nobody will ever do them again. It was, as our glass says, a high-wire act that no one else could perform. But there were also things that Garrison Keillor did that was get, were getting a little stale. I happen not to like very much this very disposable song that he would write and sing at the beginning of each show. With uh, an actual musician hosting the show, Chris Thiele, uh, uh, formerly of the Punch Brothers, I mean, the show music has gotten amazing right away. I think Esperanza Spalding is on it this week, which is going to be very interesting. You really have a host who can meld the music there. He's writing a song of the week too, but some of these are like really good songs. So, I mean, he'll never be able to do the stuff that Garrison Keillor did that was uniquely Garrison Keillor, but in, in all of the ways that um, – you know, that Garrison Keillor was special. Thelia is going to do uh, some other stuff. And I, I am very, very hopeful and, and excited about it. So I would say give this guy a chance. Does he tell did stories? You, not hmm. like – no. He doesn't do like tales from like Wobegon stories and stuff. But he, did you really not know that Tina Turner is the hardest working girl in show business? Oh, that, that was the whole idea. Okay. Yeah. Did you, uh, you forgot that? Really? All right. So she will not be on uh, Prairie Home Companion this week. But I – you know. Uh, and uh, as long as I've got a couple of seconds left here, I'll also say sort of a, in a similar vein. Uh, Trevor Noah just was on uh, Fresh Air. I always enjoy these interviews with Trevor Noah. He's really, really smart and really, really interesting. And I think maybe – and he's – he's, but I think he's he was also put in a very difficult position. I yeah. mean taking over for John Stewart is like taking over for Garrison Keillor, right? I mean people don't cut you a lot of slack. So go back to The Daily Show and watch it now. He's starting to find his rhythm and his I footing agree. a little bit. And I so agree. give this guy another chance. He's a really, really interesting guy. So It took John Stewart four years. Right, exactly. All right, we have to go now. People are going to ask you to support public radio. Please do that. Do that. Yeah, you should do that. Do the right thing. Yeah. Do me talking about